Good evening, everybody. I'm Paul Gilroy uh, from LSE Sociology Department, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here this evening to the school and to introduce Sven Linkvist, our distinguished speaker who's giving tonight's Hob House Memorial Lecture, Bombing Savages in Law, in Fact, in Fiction. And this lecture also serves as the opening keynote for the conference Shock and Awe, 100 Years of Bombing from Above, which will continue at Goldsmiths tomorrow and on Saturday. It falls to me publicly to express the gratitude of the organisers to the Hobhouse Fund, to LSE and to Goldsmiths, as well as to our sponsors, the British Academy, and our partners at Open Democracy and the Imperial War Museum here in London. And we do hope that many of you will join us to participate in those uh, conference discussions, as well as to commemorate at this uh, time of public national remembrance the neglected, the forgotten, and the unthinkable histories of the century of aerial bombing worldwide. Sven Linkvist's many contributions can't really be summed up briefly or lightly here. He is a pillar of Swedish politics and letters, um, and a selection of his very many books have been translated into English. That, um, but the effect of that, I think, is that the Anglo reader risks a rather skewed appreciation of the full breadth and the impact of his publications as a novelist, as a historian, a writer, a traveller, um, in so many different genres and locations. So, aside from his work on the themes that he'll address this evening, you should know that among his concerns are the intellectual, cultural and moral costs of racism, the history of imperialism, and the struggle of ordinary people to equip themselves with the forms of knowledge they can use to challenge the power of their employers, a concern that developed into something of a movement in Europe through the impact of one of his books, Dig Where You Stand. Quite simply, then, there is nobody uh, anywhere better qualified or equipped to guide us as we set out on these difficult conversations during the next few days. Um, Sven is going to speak for some 45 or 50 minutes and then has agreed to take a few uh, questions from you. And when he's finished, uh, you're all very welcome to join us for a reception in the foyer upstairs of this building. I think I'm also obliged to point out to you, and I've never done this before, that the exit doors are behind you. <laughs> so in the event of a fire alarm or something like that, I think you go for where it says exit. That's the best way out of the building. Okay, so thank you very much. And... Uh, Sven Linkvist. Thank you. Let us start with looking at two pictures. In this first illustration to Jules Verne's novel Robir le Conqueror in 1886, you see the airship gliding majestically over Paris. Powerful searchlights shine over the waters of the Seine, over bridges and buildings. The passers-by gaze up into the sky, amazed at the unusual sight, but without fear, without need to seek cover. In the next illustration, the airship floats just as majestically and inaccessibly over Africa. But here the airship does not merely illuminate the scene. 
In Africa, the engineer forcibly intervenes in these events on the ground. With the natural authority of the civilized to police the savage, the engineer uses shock and awe to stop a crime being committed. The airship's weapons are playing, death and destruction is raining down on the black criminals who scream in terror but cannot escape the murderous fire. These two pictures, I suggest, sum up some of the most essential features of the history of bombing. Ever since the laws of war were first formulated in Baghdad in the year 762, that is more than 1200 years ago, their central point has always been the distinction between combatants and non-combatants, such as mothers and children, the sick and the elderly. The main idea is that soldiers should fight soldiers, not babies. But as long as the laws of war have existed, they have also made another just as important distinction between we and them. The laws of war protect enemies of the same race, class and culture. The laws of war leave the foreign and the alien without protection. During the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, Europe began to conquer and settle the rest of the world, Siberia, Central Asia, North America, South America, South Africa, North Africa, Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific Islands. Europeans, for the first time on a large scale, met peoples they did not consider as equals, but as savages and barbarians who could be put down by any means necessary. The Puritans arrived in America, Bible in hand. They acted in accordance with the commandments of the Lord, as stated in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. When the Lord, your God, brings you into the land which you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and shall have no mercy to them. Genocide is nothing foreign to Western culture. It's inscribed in our earliest and holiest texts. And it was practiced as a matter of course when European settlers decimated or even annihilated the indigenous population in regions suitable for white settlement. The genocidal aspects of this so-called settler revolution has recently caught the attention of many scholars, such as James Bellish, John C. Weaver, and Jürgen Zimmer. 
Long before airplanes existed, their genocidal possibilities were described in European popular fiction. William Hay, in 1880, wrote of a future world where overpopulation made it necessary, unfortunately, to exterminate the inferior races. A great fleet of airships is sent to bombard China. There falls a rain of awful death to every breathing thing, a rain that exterminates the hopeless race. End of quote. Gone are the Chinese. Next, it's Africa's turn. All of the member states took part with aircraft, men and equipment when the unwelcome but unavoidable task was carried out. Today, half a century after the great extermination, the lower races are nothing but a memory. White colonists have taken over the, their lands. Hay's novel was the first of a number of such genocidal fantasies, culminating in 1910 when Jack London described the horrible discovery that the Chinese population had grown to 500 million. Quote, this disgusting sea of humanity, end of quote, posed a threat that could not be tolerated. An airplane is sent to contaminate the Chinese with a mixture of smallpox, yellow fever and cholera. When the Chinese try to flee their infested country, the refugees are systematically slaughtered at the frontiers. The modern instruments of war hold the terrified masses captive while the plague does its work. Afterwards, the lands are disinfected and new settlers move in. A new era of peace and progress, art and science can begin. Paralleling these genocidal fantasies, the tradition of protecting non-combatants continued to develop. Here also the United States was the model for the world. In 1863, the U.S. issued the famous Order Number 100 stating, quote, the unarmed citizen is to be spared in person property and honor, as much as the exigencies of war will admit. This became a model piece of legislation. Similar laws were passed in most European countries. And the most authoritative expression of this new order was the Petersburg Declaration of 1868, signed by 17 European states. A key passage runs. The only legitimate object which states should endeavor to accomplish during war is to weaken the military forces of the enemy. But this rule applied only to the 17 European signatories of the Declaration. It did not apply in Africa, Asia, Australia or the Americas. There the enemy often had no army to vanquish, no capital city to occupy, 
no government with which to sign a treaty. The enemy was the people. According to Colonel Caldwell, an experienced counterinsurgency officer well known in those days, the method of European troops was often to make havoc, which, quote, the laws of regular warfare do not sanction. One must steal the enemy's cattle, destroy his stores of food, and burn his villages even if sensitive individuals might find this objectionable, as he writes. The capture and burning of towns, says uh, W.C.G. Henniker in his book on bush warfare, is of course a concomitant to savage fighting. The great thing is to impress savages with the fact that they are the weaker and that it's intended to occupy the country and enforce the will of the white man. No leniency, half measures are any use until the savage has felt the power of force." End of quote. Those were the methods. Intentions, of course, were always of the best. Engineer Robure attacks the African village not to expand the French Empire, but to stop human sacrifice. Others wanted to stop widow burning, torture of prisoners, terrorism, or other infringements of human rights. Some waged war to stop free trade in slaves. Others to tear down obstacles to free trade in opium. In the world of Engineer Robure, every European was obliged to punish what would today be called crimes against humanity wherever a non-European committed them. And in dealing out such punishment, there was no need to obey the rules of war. International law protects only the powerful, wrote Swiss scholar Josef Hornung in a seminal series of articles in, 1980, in 1885. The other peoples who make up three quarters of humanity have no recourse against injustice. We burn their poor villages, we cut down their fruit trees, we massacre their women and children. Is this, I ask of you, the best way to teach them to love civilization? In 1908, the first airplane was demonstrated to the public, and military men at once saw how it could be used to punish natives. The Air Force would patrol the land as the Navy had always patrolled the sea, wrote R.P. Hearn in Aerial Warfare, 1910. That is, the first, one year before the first bomb was dropped. Whenever necessary, bombers could mete out a sharp, severe and terrible punishment 
which would nevertheless be more humane than a traditional punitive expedition since soldiers' lives would be spared and bombs would target the lawbreakers and leave the innocent unharmed. This, of course, was pure fantasy. Such precision never existed. When the French sent six planes to police Morocco in 1912, the pilots had to choose large targets, villages, markets, grazing herds, otherwise the bombs would miss. And the next year, 1913, when the Spaniards began to bomb their part of Morocco, they used bombs filled with small steel balls intended to spread the effect of the bomb to as many live targets as possible, be they military or civilian. During the first Hague Peace Conference in 1899, the small European countries argued for a total prohibition of the coming air war. The great powers, especially Great Britain, argued against prohibition. The dropping of bombs from the air would, they said, be of enormous advantage to a country like Britain, which possessed a great empire but only a small army. The Second Hague Conference in 1907 produced Article 25, prohibiting bombardment by whatever means of towns, villages, dwellings or buildings which are undefended. <coughs> this prohibition was on the whole upheld during the First World War. Total British deaths from air attacks were 1,400, a mere fraction of what a single day at the front would cost. After the Great War, the Royal Air Force seemed to be an expensive, oversized branch of service which had been of little use during the war and which could be used in future wars only in contravention of international law. The Air Force saved itself by going outside Europe and thereby outside international law. Bombing became the cheap method of keeping the natives of the empire in check. Bombers were used to police Somaliland, Egypt, Palestine, Aden, Iraq, Afghanistan and the northwest of India. A whole generation of British airmen grew up using bombs to burn villages and destroy the people's means of livelihood. Andrew Boyle, in his um, a biography of Trenchard draws attention to the first report from Baghdad by squadron leader Arthur Harris. He describes an air raid that causes wild confusion among the natives and their families. Quote, Many of them jumped into a lake, making a good target for the machine guns. Arab and Kurd now know what real bombing means in casualties and damage. They know that within 45 minutes a full-sized village see attached photos of Kushan al can be practically wiped out 
and a third of its inhabitants killed or injured by four or five machines which offer them no effective means of escape. These words appear in an early draft of the report, Notes on the Method of Employment of the Air Arm in Iraq. It was deleted from later versions in favor of a presentation of the Air Force as a, quote, humane means of controlling ungovernable peoples. Harris was proud of what he was doing. His superiors wanted to cover it up, and some of them were outright disgusted. The commander of the British forces in India wrote to the Viceroy, quote, I loathe bombing and never agree to it without a guilty conscience. He called it a revolting method of making war, especially by a great power against tribesmen. When our troops enter a bombed village, this is a quote, the Paria's dogs are already at work eating the corpses of the babies and old women who are being killed. Colonel Osborne told the Manchester Guardian in May 1935, many suffer from ghastly wounds, especially some of the younger children who are all covered with flies and crying for water. The problem was that this revolting method had and still has few alternatives. In the recent wars against Iraq, towns and villages were once again bombed like they had been in the 20s and 30s and innocent civilians were killed to punish their oppressor, Saddam Hussein. Dams and waterworks necessary to sustain the life of the civilian population were bombed, although international law prohibits the targeting of such civilian objects. British and American bombers policed the no-fly zones of Iraq, meeting out sharp, severe and terrible punishment when they so judged necessary. This raises a number of questions. Who should decide if a crime against humanity is to be punished or not? Should it be up to the great powers? Is bombing an appropriate means of law enforcement? If bombing is used to protect human rights, must it be conducted according to the laws of war? Or can the civilian population and its means of livelihood be attacked with impunity just because the purpose of the attacker is to protect human rights? If so, we are back again in the world of Engineer Robir. He thought it his duty as a civilized being to use air power to stop human sacrifice. Was he right? If it was wrong, who is going to stop human sacrifice? And if not from the air, how shall it be done? On the other hand, if the laws of war are not upheld even by the police bombers, even in peacetime, 
even with no real enemy in sight how can we believe that the, these laws will ever be respected in wartime if civilians cannot be protected even from the bombing of those who bomb only to protect human rights how can we hope that international humanitarian law will ever be respected in war In 1938, the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain declared it is against international law to bomb civilians as such and to make deliberate attacks upon civilian populations. Reasonable care must be taken in attacking military objectives so that by carelessness a civilian population in the neighborhood is not bombed. This was in 1938. Seven years later, British bombers had killed half a million German civilians and severely injured another half million. More than a million families had been had their houses destroyed. And this had not happened by mistake. Year after year, the main task of the British Air Force had been to bomb women and children, the old and the sick, in their homes. In the beginning of the war, both Germans and Brits were very careful not to bomb each other's cities. On becoming Prime Minister in May 1940, Churchill broke this taboo. One of his first decisions was to send 37 bombers to attack Mönchengladbach in the Ruhr. Hitler did not answer. Later the same month, followed another four British attacks against Hamburg, Bremen and Köln. Why? The reason is obvious. After a lightning attack on France, the Germans stood victorious on the European continent. Bomber command was the only weapon by which Churchill could still reach Germany. To be able to continue the war, he had to bomb. The alternative was to leave Europe to the mercy of Hitler. In June, Bomber Command made 11 air attacks. In July 8, in August 15 air attacks against German cities, Hitler still did not answer in kind. His air force was built and trained to cooperate with panzer attacks on the ground, not for strategic bombing. He had no heavy bombers, he didn't want a bombing war. But towards the end of August, Churchill started to bomb Berlin. After four attacks in rapid succession, Hitler was furious and promised to erase urban Britain. The 7th September, he started the Blitz. London was bombed every night during the autumn and then sporadically until the final attack on 10th of May 1941 on the anniversary of Churchill's coming to power and the beginning of the bombing war. Hitler believed uh, in the line with many military thinkers that bombing would break Britain, Britain's will to continue the war. The result turned out to be the opposite. 
before the Blitz, there were still people who wanted to save the British Empire by uniting with Germany against Russian communism. After the several many thousand, uh, 40,000 dead in the Blitz, there was no turning back. The Blitz had Churchill to become the undisputed leader we now remember. Brutality escalated on both sides. Technical difficulties worked in the same direction. Bombing a whole town is much easier than trying to find and hit a specific industry. According to the laws of war, the military value of an air attack should always be measured against its cost in the form of a so-called collateral damage, unintended injury to civilian lives and properties. What happened was that collateral damage began to be considered not as a cost, but as an added military value. The supposedly unintentional collateral damage became the stated aim of the bombing. It was called civilian morale. But since this morale was housed in the bodies of boys and girls, babies and mothers and grandparents who together constituted the civilian population, it was impossible to bomb the morale without killing people you were not allowed to kill. In February 1942, the new pol policy was, uh, was expressively formulated in Directive 22 to Bomber Command. The attacks should focus on, quote, morale of civil population, in particular industrial workers. Aiming points should be, quote, built-up areas, not, for instance, the dockyards or aircraft factories that had formerly been the preferred targets. When this order was given, the emergency situation that had been used to justify British bombing of civilians no longer existed. The German Air Force had stopped bombing Britain. Great Britain no longer stood alone against Hitler but was part of an alliance with the superpowers Soviet and United States. The American Air Force was willing to suffer great losses to keep up its policy of bombing only military targets. It was now in this new situation that the British Bomber Command started an all-out bombing campaign targeting German civilians. Why? Several different explanations have been tried, but the factor I want to emphasize is Great Britain's colonial experience. To keep and expand their empire, the European military had become used to fighting extremely violent wars against whole peoples with little regard to the laws of war. The man put in charge of implementing the new bombing policy of February 1942, Arthur Bomber Harris, was a ruthless exponent of colonial practice. He had a fanatical belief in dehousing of German families as a method to force the Nazi leadership to surrender.
RAF looked upon Iraq as a wonderful training ground, writes military historian David O'Missy. All the RAF high-ups during World War II had learned their trade in the colonies. Arthur Harris had practiced in Kurdistan and Palestine. Charles Portal had been commanding officer in Aden. Edward Ellington came from India and the Middle East and so on. To put it bluntly, Arthur Harris' closest colleague was an old pal from the bombing of Iraq. His closest superior was an old pal from the bombing of Aden. Those who had fought the lawless colonial wars on other continents were now called back to Europe to defend the freedom and democracy against Hitler. They brought their methods and morals with them. Harris was a great believer in shock and awe, and he loved bombing. In Iraq, he often acted as a bomber himself, and he was good at it. He invented a method of showering the straw roofs of Iraqi villages with small incendiary bombs. In Europe, he used a similar method to burn down Hamburg and Dresden. The killing of some 50,000 Dresden civilians in a single night was of course a major war crime. What was even worse, a precedent was created that would, could be used to justify any and every subsequent killing. During the last four months of the war, 16,000 civilians were killed in Magdeboy. 20,000 in Pforzheim, 23,000 in Swinemünde, and at least 77,000 in other German towns. Bomber command went berserk against an enemy which now could neither defend himself nor surrender. After Dresden, the Americans abandoned their unsuccessful attempts to precision bomb Japan. Dresden was repeated in Tokyo, in Yokohama, in Osaka, in Kobe. Every major Japanese town was burnt to the ground with uh, enormous civilian losses until finally the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima seemed the natural next step. And once Hiroshima had been nuked, U.S. military planners could go on to drop shot. The battle plan of 1949, where the inhabitants of 100 Soviet cities are exterminated by 300 atom bombs, releasing the destructive power of 800 Hiroshimas. A few years later, both superpowers had hydrogen bombs sufficient to eradicate all mankind. In hindsight then, was the Allied bombing of Germany in World War II a necessity or a crime? Many have given clear-cut answers. It was a necessity or it was a crime. Personally, I would say that it was both. It was a necessity slowly and surreptitiously growing into a crime. 3% of all the bombs against Germany during the war 
were dropped during the years 1940 to 41, when Britain stood alone against Hitler. These 3% were indeed necessary. After that, the bombing of German civilians became increasingly criminal, culminating in the, least, in the last 10 months of the war, when 80% of the bombs were dropped. Both the few necessary and the many unnecessary of these crimes are children of the same admirable and disastrous decision whereby Churchill started the bombing war and saved Europe. Immediately after the Second World War, the International Red Cross tried to re-establish laws protecting civilians from bombardment. But the Allies could hardly agree to such rules without incriminating themselves for what they had just done and planned to continue doing. The Americans insisted that civilians should not be protected from nuclear weapons. The British insisted on freedom quote, the freedom to carry out operations, particularly bombing. According to international lawyer Geoffrey Best, Britain also worked hard to outlaw the term war crime and any other wording which could be taken to imply that breakers of the Geneva Convention were criminal and could be persecuted. The convention that was finally agreed upon in 1949 was much watered down but still caused big headaches for the democracies. The problem was that both the leading European democracies, Britain, France, Belgium, Holland, and the leading European dictatorships, Soviet Union, Spain, Portugal, were also leading colonial powers. Impoverished by the war, these countries could not afford expensive colonial conflicts, but nor could they afford to lose Malaya and other such colonies with large export surpluses that brought in much needed hard currency. The solution was police bombing. This had worked well between the wars after all. Since then both bombs and airplanes had undergone enormous improvement. It should be quite possible to keep rebellious peoples in check from the air. The French, French began on the very first day of peace. On May 8, 1945, while cheering crowds celebrated peace throughout Europe, the people of the Algerian town Setif demanded the self-determination they had heard so much about during the war. When the police couldn't handle the matter, the French military went, on, went in with bombers and tanks. A few days later the revolt had been crushed and 40 odd Algerian villages had been destroyed. 70 Europeans and 50 times as many Algerians had been killed. Or perhaps it was a hundred times as many. Algerian bodies weren't counted very carefully. 
the event was hushed up and the little that did come out drowned in the celebration of peace. Soon bombing was back in the old role of securing European colonial power in Vietnam, in Malaya, in Aden, in Kenya, on Madagascar, in Syria, in Algeria. The same old bombs were dropped, the same old villages burned. The wars were reported as police actions to fight terrorism or to stop the spread of communism. Only slowly and reluctantly did Europe admit that these wars were wars and that the struggle concerned the right to independence. When the great European empires finally were dismantled and when the American wars to stop the spread of communism were finally over in the 1970s, only then could the protection of civilians once again become part of international law. My book, A History of Bombing, takes the bombing story up to the end of the 20th century. What is new since then? September 11th is often talked about as if history had been forever changed by Bin Laden. The hijacking of fuel-loaded civilian airliners for coordinated kamikaze attacks on civilian and military targets on the US mainland was, of course, a disgusting criminal and military innovation but hardly a turning point in history, rather a logical development of the suicide bomb. More than 20 years ago, the Israeli military historian Martin van Greveld rejected modern sophisticated weapon systems as dinosaurs, too big, too expensive, too complicated, and above all, too destructive to be used in the wars that are actually waged. The bomb of the future, he said, is not the intercontinental missile, but the car bomb, the letter bomb and the suicide bomb. One objection to this prognosis is that the suicide bomb goes against a powerful trend in the history of weapons. From bow and arrow to intercontinental missile, new pieces of military hardware have tended to increase the distance between the soldier and his enemy. <coughs> the art of killing from a distance became a European speciality very early on, wrote Geoffrey Parker in his book The Military Revolution, 1988. The arms race between coastal states of Europe in the 17th century created fleets and cannons that were able to build global empires far away from the home country. Pre-industrial Europe had little that was in demand in the rest of the world. Our most important export was military force. We were regarded as, at the time as nomadic warriors in the style of the Mongols and the Tartars, rain from the back of horses, we from the decks of ships. 
The Chinese had discovered gunpowder in the 10th century and had caused the first cannon in the middle of the 13th. But they felt so safe in their part of the world that they refrained from taking part in the naval arms race. Thus, the backward and poorly resourced Europe of the 16th century acquired a monopoly on ocean-going ships with guns capable of spreading death and destruction across huge distances. <coughs> Naval guns were succeeded by bombs and missiles. The distance between the soldier and his enemy continued to grow. What comes next? What will be the new revolution in warfare? The majority of American aircraft on duty in Iraq and Afghanistan are now unmanned so-called drones. Pilots and bombers do not need to be personally present at the killings. The operators are the opposite of suicide bombers. They sit safe and secure in their offices in Nevada, USA, bombing live targets they have never seen except on the screen. Many studies have shown that killing becomes easier the further you are from your victim. During the Second World War, bomber crews sometimes incinerated tens of thousands of human beings in a single night. Few of them could have done the same with a flamethrower. Very few could have done it if they had actually been present at the suffering they were causing. To sit secure in your Nevada office while killing in Afghanistan makes it abstract even boring, sometimes enjoyable, like a video game. A good read about this robotics revolution in warfare is P.W. Singer's Wired for War, 2009. Drones have depersonalized and dehumanized war, he says. The robot bomber is the ideal soldier, never tired, never hungry, never afraid, never forgets his orders. The most popular drone is called Predator, flies 24 hours without refueling, feeling neither compassion nor guilt. The Predator acts without intent and without mercy. The drone war is the unmanned opposite of the mass armies of the Great War. Convenient, as long as the other side hasn't got the drone. But remember, for the price of a jet fighter, you can buy 85 predators. They're dirt cheap. What if the drone becomes every man's, or at least every state's weapon? Will, will it not be too easy to wage war if all your risks are machines, not soldiers? Some military men are afraid that the computer memory will ensnare the robot warrior. If every bomb is registered and documented so that it can afterwards be scrutinized for compatibility with the laws of war, who will then dare to bomb? Who will dare to wage war? Even more relevant is the question, who is responsible? 
Most drones still don't act without direct orders from the human operator in Nevada. Some recent versions start and land with human assistance, but once in the air fly themselves. Developers are working on drones that are able to choose the method of accomplishing a given task. The goal is the fully independent drone who, within a given framework, decides where to go and what to do. In different degree, they all pose the question of responsibility. A machine, however smart, cannot be charged with war crimes. If a machine kills my child, is it the operator, or the programmer, or the engineer, or the manufacturer, or the buyer, or the military brass, or perhaps the political decision makers who are to blame? Big money goes into the development of new drones. It should be quite possible to teach a drone to fight enemy drones and uh, rob them of the energy they are carrying. A new sort, sort of cannibalism to some of us. To others, uh, it would be a comforting thought that long after we are all gone, our drones could continue the fight against terrorism. And what will happen if the unmanned, dehumanized, irresponsible drone warfare combines with the old, almost forgotten nuclear threat? What happens if hackers get in and manage to reprogram just one little nuclear-armed drone? The hydrogen bomb, once designed to deter Soviet expansion, is still with us, remember? long after the Soviet Union has been dissolved and its expansion is but a memory. Enormous stocks of nuclear weapons potent enough to kill every child on earth are still with us, more dangerous than the forgotten dangers from which they were once supposed to protect us. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Sven, for that. I wonder if we can um, take some questions first and then some comments. And if you, what we'll do actually is we won't take them individually. If we can take them in, in threes, then you can choose from what you hear how you might wish to reply. So, let's see some hands. There's a gentleman here um, on the left-hand side. And Thank you, brilliant lecture. Now, you, it was uh, the one, I understand, the 100th anniversary of strategic bombing. If I'm right, if I just confirm that if I'm right, it, the first bomb was, you know, Italy in war with Turkey bombed what is now Libya, and uh, that led to the Italian taking... Libya from the uh, from the Turks. Is that right? I, I'd just like to know. I think I'm right in saying that. That was the first 
example of strategic bombing, the 100th anniversary in 1911. Yes. Uh, yes, it was indeed the first example of, of uh, aerial bombing and uh, after the first bomb the Italians continued bombing uh, Libya uh, and in the year, next year, 1912, on the anniversary of the first bomb, they declared the war finished um, and thanked the Air Force for the demoralization of the, the enemy. But the resistance continued uh, and it was only in 1932, that is 20 years later, that the resistance was finally crushed. Uh, by then, more than a third of the inhabitants in Libya had been either killed or exiled. And of the rest, half of, of the population were in the concentration camp, resulting in one third, more less than one third of the population being still alive and free. Somebody here on the right hand side. No? Well, perhaps then you, if you would don't indicate to them that the person's disappeared from over there. Do you not think after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, when the powers took steps in dismantling their warheads um, across the world, was a significant step in reducing such warfare? Yes, the question was uh, whether after the Cuban Missile Crisis mm -hmm. there was uh, significant attempts to reduce by, uh, the risk of these forms of warfare as a result of attempts to control the warheads involved. Mm. Shall we go on? Or yes, let's we'll take a couple more <laughs> here and then we will come back to your question. Let's take them in threes. Thank you very much. I thought that was really fantastic talk. Um, I just wanted to make, I suppose, two small points. It's not, I'm not sure if it's a question or not, although if you've got an extra insight, I'd love to hear it. Um, two things struck me, particularly towards the end of your talk. One was the way that you talked about drones made me think very much about landmines. I mean, landmines were always known as the sleeping soldier. The great thing that you could do is throw them out there and leave them they carry on killing for you long after the armies have left and you know as, as many of us know there's landmines littered all over the world still huge tracts of land that people can't use thanks to landmines and it sort of is a horrifying thought to think that drones can sort of take take that to a new level which is also kind of shocking to understand how cheap relatively cheap they are the only other thing i wanted to say quickly was that um off the back of the um, invasion of Libya in, across the Horn of Africa now, the US is building military drone bases and I understand that part of the reason that the US was supporting the uprising in Libya was related to 
who would support drone bases in the Horn of Africa, which was one thing that Gaddafi was very much against. Thank you. Um, can you just get, go up to there on the uh, aisle? Thank you. you. Thank you for your talk. Um, you spoke about the different the the um, the suicide bombers and car bombs, and I wondered if you could um, elaborate maybe on the differences between um, state bombs and bombs of a citizen, maybe. Um, and yeah, I, there, there are there are obviously obvious differences, but the kind of more subtle ones, maybe. Can you think of subtle differences between the bombs that are held and used by states and those like car bombs or suicide bombs that fall into the hands of non-state actors or individuals? Mm -hmm. What? Do you want to? Uh, I think we have three now. We? Yes, we have three now. No. So, uh, first, the question concerning uh, Cuba in 1962. I remember that very, very well. Uh, I lived at the time in China uh, and was staying in a little house that was about halfway between the Communist Party headquarters on the other side of the street and uh, the uh, quarters behind Tiananmen where uh, Chinese Communist leaders had their private uh, apartments and, and offices. And I think if anybody in the world had more uh, nuclear weapon weapons directed against him or her than we had um, in that house in the <laughs> in Peking, uh, they must be in very few places. Maybe the Kremlin. Uh, so. Uh, I was indeed uh, very frightened and very focused on the uh, this situation. But I don't think that, well, and some good came out of it. Uh, the, this confrontation, a, a better understanding between the two superpowers, uh, and certain restrictions on. Uh, on uh, the weapons that they used, um, but not anything of great significance uh, as, as the weapons are concerned, because uh, the cumulative uh, effect of the weapons that they carried uh, was rather increased than diminished. And so the danger that, of what would happen uh, if uh, they ever were used 
became greater than it was before. The parallel landmines and uh, drones, I think, uh, was an interesting one um, and w well worth to develop. Uh, I have not thought about it before, so I have nothing special to say about it. Um, yes, I think that okay. is what I... Um, there are two, two people here, and a uh, gentleman in the white shirt on that side, I've seen you too. Thank you for a very interesting lecture that taught me a lot of new things. I just have a small, um, I want you to, to uh, give some comments on, uh, on uh, what happened this year uh, when you for the first time having a, a resolution from the Security Council, uh, the right to protect and the answer is bombing from the air. Could you comment on that? I didn't understand the introduction of the right to protect from the Security Council resolution, the idea that the right to protect becomes a matter of sovereignty and is then um, the right to protect is uh, enforced on the point of an aerial bombardment. That's the question. Gentlemen in black. Thank you, um, and thank you very much for a fascinating talk. Um, you make a very compelling argument about the... Um, increasing distance between the victims of bombing and the people carrying out the bombing. Um, one thing that I'm not quite clear on, um, you were talking about the, um, the Allied bombers over Germany and how the people in the planes wouldn't have been unable to, to carry out the killing of those people sort of face to face as it were or with flamethrowers. Um, at the same time however in Germany and throughout Eastern Europe people of a similar age and within armies were killing enormous numbers of people um, in the, uh, throughout the Holocaust. Um, so I'm not quite clear on the, on the, sort of, on the distinction there. I'm wondering if perhaps you can clarify that a bit for me. And in the white shirt here. I was just wondering if you could um, comment briefly on uh, how effective you think international agreements like the Geneva Conventions or the UN Convention on the Rights of Refugees are in um, restraining the behaviour of governments and if there are ways in which they could be made more effective. Thank you. Uh, yes. Uh, I've also read these Browning's books about uh, ordinary men who uh, had the option to move out of the situation, had the option not to take part in the killing of Jews uh, and still uh, did not take that possibility. They but went on uh, shooting people, shooting Jews uh, into their mass graves. Um, 
and uh, I'm well aware that this stands in opposition to but I think that these reports are uh, that Browning refers to um, are the exception rather than the rule uh, it's something to be uh, astonished at it's something to uh, what you would expect is that people would react in another way and you you wonder what might be the reason for these people not to react uh, as we uh, uh, would think they, they, they should do while not being able to uh, use a flamethrower over tens of thousands of people uh, in cellars would uh, well I am not able to express myself uh, as I would like to um, maybe we go on and Hello, thank you very much for your talk. Um, one of the lessons I've always taken from your work and from your talk today is the influence that Europeans' colonial experiences had on how they subsequently behaved in warfare and especially in bombing. Um, I think though that you, some, you uh, give the Europeans a bit of an easy ride uh, in the sense that yes there were rules of war within Europe but they were not necessarily always followed. After all, warfare within Europe was not exactly always a model of restraint. Um, so my question is, is it really true that if it hadn't been for the colonies or the colonial experiences of some of the European powers that bombing civilians wouldn't have occurred to them uh, otherwise? Thanks. Thank you very much for your talk and also for your wonderful book, Exterminate All the Brutes, that I think many of us in this room have been influenced by. Um, I've got two questions, um, really. First of all, I'd be extremely interested to know your um, response to W.G. Seabald's lecture uh, on the natural history of destruction about the war crimes committed by the British through the bombing that you've outlined this evening and the response to that in Germany, which was absolutely extraordinary. And secondly, as many of us in this room will know, about 300 yards from where we're sitting tonight, we have a statue of the man shown in that picture, um, Bomber Harris, and I wonder what you feel that says about the culture of this country, that we can have a statue to somebody you have described as 
there are very strong arguments called a war criminal for the targeting of civilians and what that says about the culture of Britain. Yes, I've read Sebald's book. I heard of it already when uh, uh, it was published in, in Switzerland uh, and uh, I phoned Sebald and, uh, because I was working on my uh, own book on uh, the history of bombing and I asked him about it. The, the main thesis Sebald has is, uh, or the big question he has is, why does German literature not give uh, any expression of the experiences of bombing that must have been so fundamental to all Germans who lived through the war? Uh, all the little children that sat in the cellars and uh, heard the bombs fall all around them and were afraid. Why haven't these children, when they grow up, created a literature uh, about being bombed? Uh, I can't say that uh, Sebald gives a, a, a good answer to uh, it really tries to answer the, the, this question, he, he, he puts the question uh, and that is perhaps uh, enough. It remains a mystery why, why uh, German literature has so little to say about the experience of being bombed. Is the colonial experience of Great Britain the, a sufficient and necessary uh, cause of uh, the bombing they did, bombing of Germany and German civilians, the targeting of German civilians? Well, uh, it's certainly not the only uh, course. Um, one very important thing, I think, was the investments made in uh, bombers. Uh, during this period when Britain stood alone against Germany and uh, the British did not yet know that uh, the United States would enter the war, and that uh, the Soviet Union would be attacked. Uh, Churchill ordered an enormous amount of bombers being made and put 
a great deal of the finances of uh, the war effort uh, into building bombers and when these bombers finally were there uh, and the production facilities existed uh, the political situation was changed and uh, the morale, moral question was also uh, become another um, but the bombers were there and the investment had been made so w w would he let them stand on the ground uh, or should he use them uh, in a way that con constituted a, a war crime um, and the result was that 80% of the bombs that was felled over Germany uh, came in the last 10 months of the war when the final uh, outcome of the war was already given and uh, it would it served very little military purpose to fell 80% of the bombs uh, of the whole war on an already uh, not vanquished enemy but uh, on, on the brink of being vanquished yeah, well I my thesis is that the colonial experiences uh, were in, in the one important uh, cause but it was not the only one and uh, maybe not even an, an necessary one. Okay, well, we'll just we'll take two more questions. The woman uh, with the blue shirt there, and then gentleman with the stripy top just behind you. And then I think we'll draw it to a close. I've. Um, I've read your book, A History of Bombing, with great interest. I've read it a few times. And um, just interested in, um, I was very, very taken by its labyrinthine structure. Um, just interesting to know if you wrote the book chronologically or if you wrote it following the strands and then assembled it afterwards. That's one question. The other question is, can you imagine the next stage in remoteness when beyond the drone, so you, the drone seems as far as you can get from destroyer and victim. Um, I wonder if you can imagine one even further. Thank you, thank you for a great talk. From which I learned a great deal. Um, my question concerns uh, what characterizes so-called strategic bombing which I think has a lot to do with the question of uh, uh, civilian casualties. Um, for instance, certainly in terms of the length and intensity on one particular target city, um, 
the Japanese naval for air forces bombing on Chongqing, Chongqing in China, from December 1938 to August 1943, could be, I think, regarded as one of the first instances of so-called strategic bombing, because Chongqing was the was then the temporary capital of China after the Japanese demolition of the former capital. Uh, Nanjing in 1937. Yes, I'm well aware of uh, the Japanese uh, strategic bombing, and I think that uh, it, you're right that that was earlier than uh, any example of strategic bombing in in Europe. Uh, but I, I did not quite understand your question. Well, what was the question? The lengths, the lengths, the time lengths, and the one particular target city uh, where there were lots of civilians may be the key to term so-called strategic bombing rather than uh, air raid in general. <coughs> oh yes. Um, about uh, the form of my book. Um, History of bombing. Uh, the reason behind it, uh, its unusual form, is that uh, in writing history, it's too easy, according to my opinion, to uh, see only one way forward, like uh, a broad motorway. And every other possibility and every other uh, thing that happens uh, is put aside, like uh, uh, they are from from a motorway. Uh, so the idea came to me to uh, use the method of uh, role playing. Uh, games. Uh, the, the the book, the books that describe such games, uh, consists of small n- numbered chapters or parts, and uh, you can walk in and out of them. And uh, there's a, a new sequence, a new story. Uh, Every time you you try it again, um, and that fascinated me, and thought uh, it looked like a, a better uh, metaphor for for the reality of his the realities of history than uh, the motorway model. So I decided to do this book that. Uh, Consists of uh, several hundred small, short chapters. Uh, every chapter concentrated to, to, to one single thing, and then letting uh, the reader. I, I, it, in the book, they are presented in a chronological order, and the reader can go. Read the book either chronologically or 
according to arrows that uh, take him or her uh, along different paths in the book. Um, I did not uh, write it in the way it's not written in the the way it is presented in the finished text. Uh, no, certainly not. I uh, had, I've written uh, following a theme, uh, following another theme. Uh, I began with something that um, is today in the middle of the book, my own childhood memories and childhood experiences of not of actual bombing, but of living in th through a war. Uh, and the feeling of responsibility I had for saving my family, and the feeling I had that my old father did not understand this new kind of war. Uh, so I must, seven years old, uh, take on the, the uh, job seeing to it that the family was saved in uh, in case of an aerial attack. This is now a, f a couple of uh, pieces in the middle of the book and it was really in reality written first. <coughs> Well, that's all I want to say about the Well, thank you very much, Sven, and I hope you will join me in thanking Sven Lee.